It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Monday, June 19th. Juneteenth, I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. New research is shedding light on the settlements of black Americans in the Adirondacks in the 1850s. The big picture is that this landscape was an amazing focus of efforts to empower people of color and make a multi racial, diverse community here in the Adirondacks that could serve as a model for the whole country. The State Assembly returns to the Capitol tomorrow for a two-day session to take care of unfinished business. There's a fair number of probably 10 bills or so that we think that would be great to see them enact in the Assembly and send on to the governor and maybe get some redemption for what was a, a, a pretty crummy move. Also, we will check in with the artistic director at the Depot Theater about its summer lineup of live theater in Westport. Chesapeake is this bonkers kind of wild show. I frankly a little jealous not to be in it. All of that and more is coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by the Village Mercantile, bringing Saranac Lake to places beyond the Adirondacks, offering Adirondack-made and inspired goods, villagemerc.com, anything but general. And by Apothecary Chocolates, making gourmet chocolates by hand from all-natural herbs, botanicals, and tree syrups, apothecarychocolates.com. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Today is Juneteenth, the holiday that commemorates the emancipation in 1865 of enslaved African Americans and celebrates black culture today. Around the time that the last enslaved people were freed in Texas, there were black Americans settling, farming, and raising families in the Adirondacks. Some scholars and local leaders have been digging deeper into that history and working to make the Adirondacks a more welcoming and diverse place today. Emily Russell reports. For most of America's history as a nation, black people have either been enslaved or oppressed. By the 19th century, slavery was abolished in the North, but there were still white Northerners who owned slaves, and all freed black people lacked basic human rights. Even in the North, many black people experienced severe discrimination. In the 1840s, a man named Garrett Smith set out to change that. He owned 120,000 acres of land in the Adirondacks. By giving away parcels of that land to black American men, those men could then gain the right to vote. Paul Smith's professor, Kurt Steger, has been researching black history in the Adirondacks. He recently presented some of those findings to the Adirondack Park Agency. The basic idea was to bring people of diverse backgrounds onto the land to live together and build communities out of mutual respect as neighbors and facing common challenges, which I think actually fits the theme of the Adirondack Park now as well. But it was uh, much more ambitious back then. That ambitious settlement became known as Timbuktu. Steger has been plotting where exactly those black settlements were in the Adirondacks. He showed the APA maps of those plots around the region. At least half of North Elba and much of St. Armand was black owned in the 1850s. There's 
the town of Franklin with Vermontville and uh, Bloomingdale just below it and all the way up to Loon Lake and beyond up into Belmont. So it was huge. About half of this landscape was Black-owned. Life in the Adirondacks was not easy back then, especially for Black people. Many eventually moved out of the area, but some stayed and raised their families in the Adirondacks. There are descendants of that Timbuktu settlement still in the region today. Another aspect of Steger's research has focused on place names. He explained to the APA about learning of an offensive name of a brook just north of Saranac Lake. Years ago, I was in Onchiota. The red star shows uh, the Paul Smith's College property. And I was talking to a friend who said, oh, that little brook right there, that's called N-word brook. I thought, wow, that's you know, not only offensive, but mysterious. How could that happen in a place like this? Steger believes the brook was named for the skin color of a dozen or so black families that lived in the area. So he and some other folks worked to change that name. They got support from students, faculty, and staff at Paul Smith College, as well as the Vermontville Town Council and county officials. They wrote to the U.S. Board on Geographic Names and were successfully granted permission to change the name to John Thomas Brook. Thomas was one of the first settlers of Timbuktu. He later sold his original plot of land, but moved back to the Vermontville area with his family. Thomas bought 150 acres of land where he grew vegetables and raised cows and sheep. John Thomas spent the rest of his days in Vermontville, and he's buried in Union Cemetery, that quiet little cemetery you drive past on Route 3 heading for Plattsburgh, zipping past, not even thinking about it. He's right in there, and so is his wife. The work to educate the public and celebrate the legacy of black settlers and abolitionists in the Adirondacks is ongoing. Martha Swan also spoke at the recent APA meeting. Swan is the founder and executive director of John Brown Lives, a project named after the legendary white abolitionists who owned a farm near Lake Placid. Through this work that others have done and that we've done together, I have begun to believe in the unifying potential of our history, the unifying potential of rolling up our sleeves, digging deep into the horrors, the terrors, the tragedies, the violence, the crime of so much of our history. Swan helped organize the Juneteenth celebration at the John Brown Farm. Then in August, the farm is planning to host a long table dinner in discussion with leading scholars such as Nell Painter. The event is an effort to bring together diverse people and perspectives to talk about the history and the future of the Adirondack Park. Emily Russell, North Country Public Radio. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. Good morning. It's seven minutes past eight. I'm Todd Mo, and I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up, we'll preview the three main stage productions this summer at the Depot Theater in Westport. That conversation in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. It's music by Canton musician Scott Shipley. You'll find more of his music online. Check out the Underscore Project at ncpr.org slash underscore. Northern Light is supported by Adirondack Experience, the museum on Blue Mountain Lake, presenting their new exhibit, Artists and Inspiration in the Wild, opening July 1st. 
Learn more at theadkx.org. And Siegel Festival in Scroon Lake, bringing opera and musical theater to the Adirondacks since 1915. More at SiegelFestival.org. The New York State Assembly returns to the Capitol tomorrow to take care of some unfinished business. The Democrats who lead the chamber have a limited agenda for the planned two-day session, but advocates are hoping for more. From Albany, Karen DeWitt reports. The Senate has already adjourned for the year, but before they close down business on June 9th, senators approved a number of measures that advocates hope the Assembly might take up in its two-day session. John Caney with the government reform group Reinvent Albany says the Assembly could pass a bill that would require secretive limited liability companies or LLCs to disclose more details of their businesses. LLCs are often used to mask ownership of large real estate tracts in the state. Caney says there's another measure approved in the Senate that places restrictions on pay-to-play campaign donations. That's where donors contribute large sums of money and later are awarded state-funded contracts. He says it would help make up for the passage of a measure in both houses that significantly weakens New York's public campaign finance law. There's a fair number of probably 10 bills or so that we think that would be great to see them uh, enact in the Assembly and send on to the governor and maybe get some redemption for what was a a, a pretty crummy move. The Senate also approved a measure known as Coverage for All. It would fund health care for some low-income immigrants who are undocumented. It stalled in the Assembly, and Governor Kathy Hochul, who would need to approve the measure for it to become law, is cool to the notion. Hochul says the federal government has authorized the use of $2 billion to be spent on the coverage, but she says if the state were to commit to funding it long-term, the total cost would be closer to 13 billion. It's not just saying that that 2 billion is going to be there forever because it won't be. If the federal government wishes to give us more to complement that supplement that give us 13 billion dollars, uh, that makes it a lot easier on the state, but I have to look at everything holistically and the impact on our state finances before I make a decision. Advocates for immigrants, including Make the Road New York, call it a common-sense measure. They point out the state's business council, as well as major health care stakeholders, back the bill. The Assembly so far has committed to just a few items. They include approval of an updated wrongful death statute that would make it easier for families of victims to bring suit in civil court. A bill that the state Senate approved to give the Hochul administration pre-authorization for a new gaming compact with the Seneca Nation of Indians has now been dropped after elected officials in Rochester said they were blindsided by plans to locate a casino in that city. Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie said in a tweet Friday evening that because of the controversy, the Assembly can't move forward with a vote on the compact. Another item that probably won't be on the Assembly's agenda, any actions to ease the state's housing crisis. That effort failed after Governor Hochul rejected a deal between the Senate and Assembly Democrats. It would revive a tax break for developers who include affordable housing in their construction projects, as well as more tenant protections. Hochul, who withdrew her housing plan during budget talks when it became clear that the legislature would not support it, says the more pressing need right now is providing more rental housing. Yes, protect tenants, but number one, I have to build more housing. We need more units built because otherwise landlords will always be able to charge more because it's a simple matter of supply and demand. And that is something that the legislature didn't quite understand. 
Hochul says she might try to act on her own to work around the legislature by issuing executive orders. She says her team is looking at alternatives to act on what she says is an affordable housing crisis. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is proposing a bill that would help farmers who are struggling with their mental health. Farmers do have a lot to deal with, like losing their crops to storms, fluctuating fuel prices and feed prices and debt. Gillibrand says the pandemic only made these problems worse. Even Even before before the the pandemic, pandemic, the suicide suicide rate rate amongst our our farmers farmers was already three and a half half times times higher than it was among the general general population. population. The National Agricultural Crisis Hotline would provide a 24-7 crisis hotline specifically for farmers, ranchers, and their families. The hotline will be staffed by crisis and mental health professionals that are familiar with the unique issues faced by farmers. We need to make sure that our farmers, farmhands, and ranchers have the resources they need so they can keep producing the products that fuel our national economy. The bill still needs to pass the Senate. In the meantime, Gillibrand is encouraging farmers who need support to call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. The town supervisor of Waddington will resign at the end of the month. According to the Waddington Daily Times, Alex Hammond is accepting an assignment with the National Guard as the State Casualty Affairs Coordinator and will be stationed at the Joint Force Headquarters in Albany County. Hammond was elected town supervisor in November 2017 and took office when he was 21 years old and a senior in college. His resignation is effective June 30th. Waddington won't vote on who will be town supervisor until an election can be held in the fall. Hammond is recommending his deputy supervisor, Travis McKnight, for the position. And the town of Hammond is hosting its fifth annual Scottish Festival in a couple of weeks to celebrate the community's Scottish settlers. According to the Watertown Daily Times, there were close to 1,000 people at last year's festival, and organizers want to surpass that this year. The events start at 8.30 on Saturday, July 8th, and include a 5K kilt run, stone and caber-tossing competitions, and musical performances with the Celtic band Killrush and the Ottawa Real Dancers. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. In just a minute, a summer of theater kicks off next week at the Depot Theater in Westport, and we've got a preview. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note coming up at 8.42. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. Partly cloudy today, highs in the low 70s, light winds out of the east-northeast, lows in the 50s tonight. It's going to get warm this week. Highs tomorrow near 80 with mostly sunny skies. Highs mid-80s on Wednesday, a high near 90 on Thursday. And highs in the mid to upper 80s again on Friday. Partly cloudy skies. Though the Weather Service says partly cloudy today. We'll see mostly sunny skies Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Uh, Right now, partly cloudy, 61 degrees in Canton.
The Depot Theater in Westport kicks off its 45th season with a production of What the Constitution Means to Me on Thursday, June 29th. Our Todd Moe has talked with the Depot Theater's producing artistic director, Michael Glavin, about live theater in Westport this summer. And Glavin says, What the Constitution Means to Me is an upbeat and quick-witted play in which a middle-aged woman recounts her upbringing as a speech and debate champion. It's the first of three main stage productions at the historic train station on Lake Champlain. What the Constitution Means to Me by Heidi Schreck. It delights, it's quick-witted, it's fun and funny, but it also takes the time to uh, confront a lot of issues, and it does it in this really beautiful way. How the play operates is the role of Heidi uh, brings the audience in to reminisce about her times as a preteen and teenage debater, and she would travel the country through speech and debate discussing our nation's constitution in the way that it is a document that speaks to all of us as Americans, that it becomes universal. So as a speech and debate expert, uh, Heidi weaves this beautiful play by uh, giving us historical context, giving us personal stories, and connecting them to this founding document of our nation. Um, I I think what's really cool, too, is you've got this, as part of this this performance, you have a live debate at the end of the show, right? Yeah. So at the end of the play, holding through to its form and and its subject matter, Heidi Schreck had the audacity to uh, (laughs) bring in other writers and, and former or current speech and debate students to test her live on stage. And so uh, we're really excited to bring that to the stage at Depot. It being such an intimate house, I think, is really going to thrive. And, um, yeah, it promises to maintain every night is unique. Well, okay, so moving to Chesapeake, I am a dog lover, and uh, so when I first saw this on your lineup uh, with this yeah. adorable chocolate lab in the in the visuals <laughs> for the show, I thought, "Wow, are they going to have a, a dog actually on stage?" So, <laughs> in in a theatrical sense, okay, absolutely. right, right. right. <laughs> Chesapeake is this bonkers kind of wild show. I uh, I am absolutely enamored and. Frankly, you know me from having been on the stage last mm-hmm. year, so I'm frankly a little jealous not to be in it, but that's fine. <laughs> um, it is a tour de force, one-person show. And so there is a dog, but there's also a handful of other characters that this this actor will inhabit, and frankly, instantaneously. Um, there are scenes between two people and a dog where uh, our, our actor, his name is Luke Weiner, coming from New York City, and he absolutely transformative, uh, spur of the moment. It is about this hyper-liberal performance artist, and his work has just been slandered by a hyper-conservative senator, and so he vows revenge and, and goes to kidnap the senator's dog, who has been making all the public appearances and garnering all this terrific favor for the senator. And then amidst a really wacky scene with some mystical magic, he becomes the dog. It is hilarious, riotous, and I weep like a baby at the end every single time. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's 
a thrill. It's an amusement park of a play. Then for the third show, you're, the theater is kind of looking back to its first, very first season, 45 seasons ago, with the Fantastics. Yeah. It had uh, a historically long run off-Broadway in New York. In my estimation, a, a show about love. And if, if that doesn't strike a nerve for anyone, then I'm so sorry. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it is a show about love and, frankly, a lot of the ways that we mess it up, that we get in our own way or we try to control aspects of it. And the show is, is full of folly and, and foolishness, silliness, which is a sheer delight. But ultimately, there comes the question like, what does genuine and true love mean? Or how how can we get to the real thing as opposed to something that is prescribed or something that we are told it's supposed to be? I'm really excited about this production because as a classic, you know, it it, it is a score that I feel like many generations know. It was one of the very first pieces I did when I graduated college. Mm. It's a score that... that full of love and then for this play we're looking at what are the ways that we can build this production in a way that is unique or specific to this time the conceit being we're bringing together a bunch of actors sort of in like a a summer camp kind of venue um which you know makes sense with us being in the outdoors and all this group sort of gathering together to make a show yeah and uh, living in that sort of, you know, meta-theatricality, being aware that we're putting on a show, in that we've got sort of a self-assignment of roles going on across the actors. Like, oh, I'll try this one. Wait, no, you try this one. And, you know, it's the original script, it's the original score, but, but we're, we're bringing some new fun things to it. So honoring our first season and forging forward uh, for our 45th. And then you've got a theater program for young people in the area? We sure do, yeah. We've uh, got the Academy, which um, is just like bursting with talent this year. And we're doing a premiere of a brand new show, um, Camp, a new musical. Mm-hmm. It, it had a, a, a brief off-Broadway run, um, but we are premiering it as a regional debut. And so that one, instead of being on our depot stage, that one's going to be uh, at the at the Grange Hall, the Wallensburg Grange Hall. Right. And that's uh, August 4th through 6th. Typically, some of the, the younger academy programs have been closer to like 15, 20 young artists and performers. And I think this year we're pushing 30, 40. So like the sense of community is growing uh, and, and like the arts are alive and well, uh, especially for our younger generation, which is super exciting because they're going to be the ones to make theater in the future. So that's super, super exciting. Wow, you said 30 to 40 young people? That's amazing. Yeah, and luckily enough, we have we have a terrific creative uh, production team here. Bonnie Brewer uh, and Kevin Boyle are building every set, designing every set that we have. And so, like, for these incredibly disparate, um, shows that we're doing, and then on top of you know this academy, like how to how to build a stage that can accommodate <laughs> so many humans, and and they're they're just knocking it out of the park. We're very very lucky to have them. 
Deepa Theater producing artistic director Michael Glavin. The theater's summer season in Westport kicks off on Thursday, June 29th. You'll find more about the schedule, the shows this summer at depotheater.org. It's 8.24. You're listening to, uh, to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I just want to thank you all for coming and for celebrating my dad's birthday with us. This train is bound for glory, and uh, quite a lineup there for that live uh, performance. Judy Collins, Lucinda Williams, Roseanne Cash, John Leventhal, 
A sweet honey in the rock. This train is bound for glory. It's coming up on 28 minutes past 8. This is Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio, supported by Adirondack Experience, the museum on Blue Mountain Lake, presenting their new exhibition, Artists and Inspiration in the Wild. It's opening July 1st. You can learn more at the adkx.org. I'm Todd Mo, And I'm Monica Sandreski. And for Juneteenth today, don't forget to head over to Lake Flower Landing in Saranac Lake for a screening of the film Songs of Slavery and Emancipation, a presentation for Juneteenth. There will be a screening and a special Q&A with film uh, director Matt Callahan. That's at Lake Flower Landing. Uh, coming up today, you can find out more from NorthCountryUndergroundRailroad.com. Also coming up on Thursday night at 7 o'clock at the Downtown Artist Cellar in Malone, it's their twi- uh, their um, uh, Twilight Open Mic. Uh, live music, poetry, and more, and you're invited Thursday night, 7 to 9. Performer sign-ups start at 6.30. That's right on East Main Street in Malone, the Downtown Artist Cellar. Music, poetry, other live performances Thursday night. And Fryhofer's Saratoga Jazz Festival is coming up at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center this weekend, featuring Pat Matheny Side Eye, Angelique Kijo, Tower of Power, and and uh, Snarky Puppy, Corey Wong, and more. St. Paul and the Broken Bones. You can find out more uh, at spac.org for the Saratoga Performing Arts Center's uh, Jazz Festival coming up this weekend. That's it for the show for the day. Morning Edition continues in just a minute. Then join us for a conversation later this morning on 1A. For Juneteenth, 1A pays tribute to a trailblazer. George Shirley was the first black tenor to sing in a leading role at the Metropolitan Opera. We hear why his voice still captivates audiences today. Coming up between 10 and noon here on NCPR. I'm Monica Sandreski. I'm Todd Moe. Be well.